I don't want a pickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle Alright, and we're at Nokomoto episode 21 mm-hmm. I'm your host, MotoGP And with me, just Swiggy today Yo Okay, let's talk bikes So Not much exciting happening lately but um let's see here what do we have on the agenda today sweetie well well obviously we've got best bike in the world worst bike in the world yes uh unfortunately we have no shared monitor right now um i'd like to take the moment to rant about design and the new macbook pro Mm -hmm. so i use my work computer to to do all my end of this recording session and i got the new macbook which is all usb type c all around Mm -hmm. and headphone jack which means i have no usb 3 ports got no hdmi i've got this weird touch bar thing going on which is kind of like having buttons that you have to look at to use. Yeah, but you can play Doom on the touch bar, right? This is true. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a good novelty for about five minutes, and then it's a pain in the ass. I, so if you if you're designing a product and you're going for extreme weight savings, and you decide that you're going to shave features off and ignore the vast majority of your use cases, you're kind of an asshole. Okay. So, normally, when I plug, when we're doing this setup, I have to plug in this dongle, which will break out one port into HDMI and power and a normal USB port. You know, mm-hmm. just the things that you use every day that the standard MacBook Pro doesn't support. Right. It's a huge kick in the nuts. Because now I have to carry this little dongle. But here's the thing. You know, they made they made it a little bit slimmer. And they made it a little bit lighter. But you have to carry this dongle around to do anything. Which is very easily lost. Which is very easily lost. Also, when you're carrying your MacBook Pro around, if you take that dongle and you place it alongside any dimension of the MacBook Pro... It's larger than the old MacBook Pro. So what's the point? Yeah, Mac's doing a lot of these really curious things with making things lighter and stuff. I mean, let's just take the uh, the new iPhone earbuds, right? So now they're just totally wireless and all of that, which on the surface seems pretty cool. But I've met more people that prefer the old ones because they're like, guess what? I don't have to charge them ever and they sound exactly the same and it's harder to lose them and you know i mean all all earbuds since the beginning of time have all gotten tangled up and whatever so that's not a real big issue it's just that now they're completely detached and you can't just use them like normal headphones because like i mean what's the battery life on Hmm. them a few hours or something right so here's the most insane thing about the new macbook pro and this may blow your mind okay 
If you go and walk into the Apple store right now and buy an iPhone X and a top-of-the-line MacBook Pro, Mm -hmm. you cannot plug your iPhone X into your MacBook Pro. Yeah, it's a little crazy. I know. And it's all USB Type-C, yet somehow they're still using the lightning port for their phones. If only there was some sort of universal standard that was compatible with everything, including their own products. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) So if, if you're designing a product, take note. Just don't pull this shit. Right. Okay. So. I think it's time to move on to best worst bike. Let's do it. All right. You've got best bike this week. Mm-hmm. All right. And so the best bike in the world this week is. The genuine scooter company's buddy kick. What The buddy kick. I don't think I know the buddy kick. I know all about the buddy 50 and one, two, five. Uh, this is a version of the buddy one, two, five. Does it just have a kick start or what's going on? So it's really just a uh a bit of a marked up version of the Buddy 125. Okay. And so it costs $3200, mhm, which is $200 less than the Grom, about the same horsepower. Um and Overall, it's it's very nice. It's it is air cooled, but you get fuel injection and you get two you get disc brakes front and rear. That's pretty cool. So, the main reason I'm picking this bike in particular is I know I now know two people at work who started riding this year. They both independently got buddy kicks. Okay. They're both absolutely in love with them. Mm-hmm. And if this bike didn't exist, I'm not sure they would have gotten into motorcycling. This is really kind of the equivalent of of the Stella kind of emulating, you know, the Piaggio Vespa right. style. But now it's also operating at the at the correct price point as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Stellas were always, yeah, three and a half, four grand, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. But you had basically Royal Enfield levels of build quality. Whereas I've never heard anyone talk shit about the way a buddy was put together. Right. Well, and as I've also figured out. It wasn't even when Cleveland Moto got the uh, the Buddy 50 or the 125, I can't remember which. Um, Phil took a pink one around the Lake Erie Loop race. Oh, yeah. Which, I don't know, I feel like maybe next year, instead of going to MotoGP, we should go do the Lake Erie Loop. (laughs) There's something about that. I was just watching, like, little documentary video they did about it the other day, coincidentally, and um, riding long distance the way that we do from time to time, I I think we could make a serious stab at it. Like, if we created, like, a 50cc streamliner and... (laughs) I think we could make a serious stab at it. Yeah, if we just took, just say, okay, here's all the cash we were going to spend going to Coda. All right, we've got a budget of like $1,500. Uh, 
let's trailer two ridiculous things out to Cleveland and uh, do the Lake Erie Loop. Hmm. I think that would be fantastic. I think they still do it. They must. It would be a tough call passing up Coda for that, but is it at like, the same time? Uh, I think it's this month. I think it's happening like this week, I think. Or it would happen about this week if they're doing it this year. Hmm. I want to say it's early June or early July that they do it. Apparently way back in the day they used to do it in like May and people would regularly have to stop because hypothermia was setting in. <laughs> but now they do it more in the summer and uh and yeah, and it's a great cause. It's for like child like child burn victims or something like that. Like Anyway, we're getting off track. Yeah. So the buddy's awesome, it's reliable. All the buddies are, so we have no reason to think this one's different. And since it's essentially a buddy one two five, it's a bike that we all sort of know and love. So this just has some more premium features. Mm-hmm. Now it is, you know, the genuine scooter company is American, but the motor is um, is Chinese. Yes. Well, Taiwanese. Is this is this podcast um, abiding by the one China policy or? Are you allowed to say Taiwan? Yeah, we can totally say Taiwan. (laughs) But we have a Chinese listener now. We're jeopardizing our viewership. Listenership. But um, you know what? There's a (laughs) 50-50 chance they're on board with us. So, (laughs) You know, it just, this just hit me. You know what this is? This is like the Vespa 946 that makes sense. Taking mm. your base level one two five and jazzing it up with features, but it still comes in cheap at thirty two hundred instead of sixteen thousand dollars, <laughs> right? And, and you know, I have to say, it does look nice. Oh, it's, um, it's gorgeous in person. It doesn't seem. It doesn't look cheap on these pictures. It looks substantial, and like I said, buddies are sort of known for being pretty good. So, uh, does this have any? Uh, was the 125 carbureted or was that fuel injected? Just the regular 125. Uh, I'm not sure if it is today. It definitely wasn't in the past when it first came out, but I believe it. I believe it might be now. Okay. The main thing you're really getting is the disc brakes, um, which is nice. Well, yeah. I mean, today if you buy a Honda Metro, the 2018 Honda Metro- Metropolitan is still drum brakes front and rear. And what is that coming at? Like four grand? Oh no, Honda Metropolitan's like twenty four ninety nine. Oh really? I didn't know yeah. they were that cheap. Okay. Well, it's a fifty cc. Yeah. And it's built as cheaply as possible. Yeah, I mean the the Metropolitan has a soft spot in my heart. I thought it was a little pricier than that for some reason, but they are known to just be absolutely bulletproof. But so are these, and this does sixty miles an hour, which the Metropolitan definitely won't well keep in mind it is still a 125 and it does have a cvt so 60 or 60 miles an hour is screaming on this thing it's that's true but you know that's also that's where you're approaching your top end on like a grom right well that's the thing it's it's a great entry level option uh also both the people writing this at work are women Mm-hmm. Um, one in her twenties, one in her thirties, and wherever they got these from, I don't know where they would have bought them from around here. But wherever it is, that shop set them up right because 
both had full face helmets and textile jackets. Excellent. So, so yeah, they, it, they were sold to them with the mentality of them being more a motorcycle, like, don't treat this like a toy. Right. And I would assume, uh, what what is the sort of support you get for these these days? I don't know how, how good it is. I mean, it cannot possibly be worse than Piaggio. Right. So, okay. And, yeah, the price makes a lot of sense. But you're saying, like, this big thing is this has been a gateway drug, and they've moved on to other bikes? No, this is, they both started riding this year. Okay, they haven't moved on yet. They're just no. in love with this. I do like that it hits 60 miles an hour because 60 miles an hour for me on a scooter is like the 100 mile an hour mark on a proper motorcycle, right? Like, Excluding it, the Skywave. Ex- well, the Skywave is – I don't know what the top speed on the Skywave is, but I'm sure it's somewhere around like 120, maybe 115 at least. I would have said about 110. Yeah, who knows? But it'll beat 100 miles an hour, right? Which is important. At 650 cc's, it really should as well. But 60 feels pretty quick on a scooter. If you've never done it before, mm-hmm. like it feels pretty quick. I really wouldn't be on a scooter this sized, probably be very comfortable going any faster than that at all. I mean, these are probably what 10 inch wheels. Uh, they are, yeah, 10 front and rear. Yeah, that is, that is terrifying at 60 miles (laughs) an hour. So this thing goes as fast as you want it to go. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say, if you can break 60, you know, you you really are motorcycling. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no way that this is just a, um. A toy and at a hundred plus miles per gallon, which is totally stock for scooters these days, then um, then it's it's super practical and like and you said like they both absolutely love them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, whereas the Honda Metropolitan is an icon, for example, not really an icon, but you know you see them everywhere, but no one really seems to just love them, right? Yeah, I mean, the Metropolitan, you know, in that 49cc range is, you know, it's still kind of in the same ballpark as flirting with uh, with with, mo- with an actual moped, like a pedal assist bike. Whereas, you know, 125cc is firmly in motorcycle territory. I agree. Yeah, so what you're looking at is something that within the city or town, whatever, does absolutely everything your motorcycle does. And it does it way more economically. And uh, I think we're seeing a shift where people are less ashamed to be on a scooter. One reason that the Grom is so popular is it intersects those worlds, right? Right. Yeah. Where I think a lot of scooter people have bumped up to the Grom and then sort of, you know, moved on into other bikes. And I think... You know, rather than get a scooter, a lot of guys went, oh, okay, I can just get a Grom and reap a lot of the same benefits. Yeah. So so you're saying, you know, this is best bike in the world because this is probably one of the best gateway drugs. Exactly. Okay. 
I'm with you because it definitely beats out the Grom because the Grom's what over four grand. Uh, well, the Grom's only two hundred dollars more expensive. Oh, really? But the point is that the Grom isn't isn't that it doesn't have quite the same level of accessibility, and I've started to see more of these around than I have Groms. Really? I also know a lot of people who picked up Groms. And have put under a thousand miles on them over two, three years. Oh, I want to say like really quick. I think we lost it on the episode that I was talking. Um, the episode that I lost, I mentioned that I thought um, Honda was going to bring the monkey bike back in a total Moto Domus moment, <laughs> and that was before I heard the news that the Grom had a redesign as the new monkey bike. Oh, yeah. So, again, everyone just needs to listen to me. I have my finger on the pulse. Okay. So, now, yeah, okay. So, the monkey bike's a great thing to bring up here, actually, because now that's brought back. That's a little bit more expensive than the regular Grom. That definitely breaks four grand. Mm -hmm. So, at $1,000 less than the monkey bike, you've got something that, even if it really isn't more approachable, um, feels emotionally sort of a lot more approachable and you know it also allows you it's it's not even just from like a a a difficulty level in terms of riding it's also kind of a psychologically and socially it's more approachable where you can pick this up and you're not a dangerous motorcyclist to all of your friends Mm -hmm. but you're still riding And you can kind of go back and forth, but you can kind of sit in the middle and, you know, be and be both at the same time to the right group. I gotcha. Yeah, I I'm digging it. I'm digging this. Um, I'm still not sure if I would go for the full on buddy kick versus just the regular one, two, five. Let me see if I can look up the price on that. Oh, wow. I didn't realize how radically different the 125 looks now. Well, this is the more modernized one that's less copying the Vespa or copying Vespa stuff. Ooh. This is significantly cheaper. Yeah, 2700 But this one does not claim to be able to break 60 miles an hour. It's about the same weight. It's This one has the, the disc brakes, but... Well, they don't mention fuel injection, so I'm going to assume it's not. Yeah, if they're not bragging about it, it's not fuel injected. So that's but, going to be the issue with the difference in power. But this is also a one two five that's only three hundred dollars more expensive than the Metropolitan. Yeah, I have to and say it's two I'm, and a half times the displacement. I'm kind of displeased with the way this scooter looks as well. It's not a looker. It's not. Is the Buddy 50 still look like a Buddy 50? No, it's gone over this weird redesign as well. Mm. Yeah, so oddly enough, the Buddy Kick looks like the old Buddies a lot more than the new ones. Right. Okay. I see what's happening here. So this is, yeah, so this really has got a different frame if and and the whole thing. Yeah, th- so this is exactly, I, I keep going back to this, this is exactly what the Vespa 946 should have been. 
Right. With yeah, it looks better. It's a little bit more premium in all the features and everything. And just a tiny bit more power and the fuel injection and the disc brakes and all of that. I'm sure this doesn't have traction control like the freaking 946 does, but who cares? All right. Yeah. And so you Vespa, don't have to, you don't have to justify your purpose your purchase by mentioning AIDS babies. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Vespa, get your shit together and why don't you take a look at what Buddy is doing? Because this is pretty good. I mean the genuine scooter company. Yeah. I mean, there's some bullshit on here, like the the Roughhouse 50, which is trying so hard to be a ruckus and failing at what makes it makes the ruckus good. It's kind of like the uh it's it's the equivalent of like store brand Lucky Charms. Yeah. It's it's kind of you know you can identify what it's trying to emulate, but it's just not working. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, I no, I I like this. I'm I'm sort of sold. I think uh, I think maybe not brand new and right now, but I think I could see room in my life at some point for a buddy kick. There's a lot of days where I'm just like, yeah. I could just sit on a scooter instead and go across town instead of getting on the super hawk and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm always happy to ride the super hawk any distance, but there are days where it'd be nice just to have a little, a little scoot about and have some fun. So, okay. Now we're going to move on to the worst bike in the world this week. And the worst bike in the world this week is. The Harley Davidson Sportster 883. Ooh, okay. Here's my problem with this motorcycle. It might be the worst value in motorcycles. Remember when we were talking about the KLX 250? Mm -hmm. And you said, this is horrible because it makes you cry twice. I don't think there's any better example than the Sportster in any of the flavors that they make it. Hmm. So when I was doing the Harley Riders course and they were taking us through the floor and showing us all the bikes, right? They go by the Sportsters and they go like 883 Sportster, great place to start, right? Harley Davidson doesn't even pretend that anyone's going to want to own this thing long term. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the girl's bike. It's the whatever. And so the expectation is that you buy a Sportster and then in a year you move on to something else. Right? Mm-hmm. So people buy these Sportsters and then have to unload them and buy something else. And the cost of a Sportster for what you're getting is ridiculous. I know two people at work right now that are thinking of buying bikes and they both thought an 883 Sportster might be a great option until they looked at what they cost. And then they were like, well, that's okay. I'll just get a used one. And that wasn't really any better. (laughs) You cannot get a used Sportster in any kind of decent shape 
for less than like five or six thousand dollars. Hmm, that's interesting. And this is like a ten thousand dollar bike to begin with. There, you, you, they're all over because you know Harley guys are convinced this bike is worth so much money, right? And they're like, well. I just bought it for $10,000, uh, you know, just eight months ago. So I need 9,000 for it now, at least. Right. And it's like, right. yeah, but you fucked with it and you put like a thousand miles on it and all this, but whatever. But like, I'm just going to go to Craigslist right now. And this is not a trick. I didn't do this earlier in the day. I'm just going to put in 883 and it's all going to be ridiculous. Like, 83 Sportster. Yeah. Here we go. Five and a half thousand dollars for one right here. Five and a half again. Yeah. Five to six thousand dollars. That's the going rate. Yeah, there's one here in Denver that's thirty six hundred. It's a ninety seven. And it's got Well, actually, hats off to this guy for putting close to forty thousand miles on his Sportster. But a '97 Sportster should most assert should most assuredly be fully depreciated, and $3,600 is not fully depreciated in Denver. Right. So the point is, is that you just can't find these for what they're actually worth. And so mm-hmm. I was talking about this with you know this guy I know that's looking for one. And he's like, yeah, but they're all like six, seven thousand dollars or whatever. That's what he was seeing for for ones and everything. And I was like, look, there's nothing wrong with the bike, but five thousand dollars is a lot to pay for forty five horsepower. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people forget as well that even though it is an eight eight three, this is not a powerful motorcycle. You know, this this actually kind of reminds me of when I first got my license and I was looking for a bike. I had my eyes set on a Triumph Bonneville. Right. <clears throat> and this was back in 2013 and all of the uh the 05s and the 06s anything carbureted bottom floor price of $4,000. Right. At eight years old. And mm-hmm. it was like, I really like it. I really want it. But I can't pull the trigger on that. Right. It made no sense. Yeah. If if you ever do find something below four grand, you know, just for like your first bike or whatever, the miles are crazy or it's been kept outside for a number of years. So it doesn't, it just looks like crap because it's been abused to hell. Right. Like the $3,000 Harley Davidson Sportster is not a bike you actually want to buy. Yeah. That's, that's a worse proposition than the sub $1,000 KLR. But here's the thing. People are asking this money for them, but they're also all over the place. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause these things are bought as this stepping stone at the Harley dealership, right? So they've got to, they've got to buy these things. Then they have to unload them. But, you know, the dealership will take in some sort of like odd trade on them in order to sell someone another more expensive bike. So the dealership has to unload it at some artificially high cost 
or they've got to sell it at some artificially high cost to justify buying this new $20,000 bike or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So what should be a really great accessible motorcycle for the people, it is way too expensive and stupid, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not trashing this bike for how it looks, and I'm not trashing it for being a little bit underpowered, and I'm not trashing it for anything other than it's just the worst value possible. It's yeah, it seems like it's it's more a victim of how Harley's positioned it and how they've marketed it within their fleet. Not to mention that, you know, it's only worth this because it says Harley Davidson on it, but weirdly it, this doesn't really get you into the Harley club. Right. Because it gets really elitist and strange very quickly. And on the 883, there's a lot of people that are still like, oh, when are you going to buy a real bike? And it's like, come on, bro. I spent the extra thousands of dollars to get the one that says Harley Davidson on the side, and they still won't let you hang? Like, what's up with that, right? Right. So it doesn't even achieve that goal for the money of getting you into the Harley Club. So I Wait, don't. Wait, so at 45 horsepower. It won't do 100 miles an hour. So this thing is. So this is less powerful than a V Star. Yeah. I mean, it's got boatloads of torque, but as far. Like, this thing, like, makes max power at, like, 3,000 RPM or something like that. Mm. It's not. It's not that great. It's it's just not. And you know, I mean the 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 eight eight three iron looks a lot better than a lot of the other ones used to. I'll admit that. But at the end of the day, I I just couldn't I could never move myself to spend that kind of money on a used bike that gets you so little, right? And it's a shame because this is a time when Harley really needs people to be able to pick these things up cheap and get into it. Right. And it's like Harley needs to just start like buying these off of people and then reselling them for a thousand dollars cheaper just to create riders in the future or something like that. Well, when you really think about it, you know, Harley should be so poised to take advantage of the used market because everybody wants to customize their harley yes so even if they're not getting a cut of the resale if all their bikes are infinitely moddable you know the harley store is a place for harley riders to hang out and it's a place for harley riders to buy aftermarket parts yes which makes them perfectly poised to get all of that additional revenue off of private sales mm -hmm. so it seems odd that they would abuse what is essentially i mean you can talk about the street 500 and street 750 as an entry-level bike but really kind of this is their original entry-level bike yes so it seems odd that they're not doing anything almost to to devalue it for mm -hmm. the most part yeah the best thing that could happen to Harley-Davidson right now is if the value on these things just plummeted to nothing. Yeah, because I know like there's a lot of people that really want to be into Harleys, but can't. 
you know, cause they're like, look, I'm working with $3,000 to buy my first bike. You know, that's what I got rolling. Right. Yeah. And it's not 2007 anymore. People aren't willing to get motorcycles on credit unless it's, unless they've already got, unless you already own a home, right. you're not putting, you're not buying motorcycles on credit. Exactly. They're not buying on credit. Everyone keeps being shocked that no one's buying new bikes. And it's like, no, it's simple. People just can't afford them. It's it's not that complicated. They will be able to at some point, but in the meantime, they need a cheaper option. And right now that cheaper option is a two and a half thousand dollar metric cruiser. Right. That that's what they're buying right now. In fact, the the value of metric cruisers uh, on the used market has been rising somewhat because all of a sudden everyone, everyone that wants a cruiser bike, that's really their only option. I've been saying for quite a while, um, probably if you're into that style of bike, you know, you've got the you've got the you've got the Yamaha Bolt. Right. And then another... Which you can pick up a Yamaha Bolt right now for about four and a half to five grand. But they've only been making them for a few years, right? So they're already down to that. So give it like five more years, you'll be able to pick up a Bolt for like two grand. And it'll be just fine. Right. And I think the ultimate budget bike in the cruiser category for me is the Suzuki C50. It's an absolutely excellent entry-level bike. 800cc, over-square motor, shaft drive, cheap as hell. It's it's actu- it's honestly perfect. The Vulcan 900 is pretty good too, but the styling has gotten a little like Victory-esque, and I don't know how much people are going to really go for that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So the, the 883... One, doesn't get you in the Harley Club. Two, costs way too much money for what it is, new or used. And three, it's been really what's become the big problem with Harley-Davidson, right? It used to be the thing, the access point to the brand, and it has now itself become the thing that blocks people from entering the brand. It's almost like the model. Yeah, now now that I'm looking at all the prices and thinking about how how other Harley riders look at the Sportster and how you know other people in general look at Harleys, it's kind of living in a no man's land. Yeah, and it's the thing is, it's not the bike's fault because honestly, for a small cruiser like this to only have 45 horsepower or around there, because which Harley is fine, is actually not that big of a crime. Because yeah. it's not meant to be a super serious like highway machine, and it's more than capable putting around town. It's you know with all that torque, it's got a little pickup between zero and fifty. I mean, there's nothing wrong 60. with this on the highway. I mean, the forty nine horsepower on the W six fifty with no torque whatsoever is perfectly fine doing eighty five. It's true, but. You know, but you know, by the by Harley's standards, it's it's not up to ten. They'll tell you that you can't take big trips with it at the dealerships. The, no, no, this is not what you need. You need this. But anyway, it's sort of hated by everybody except there's this group of people that really wants to love it, myself included. If a Harley Sportster 
was worth what it's at, what it should actually be worth, I'd have one probably. Mm-hmm. There is a part of me that really wants to have an 883 that I've done some, you know, that I've breathed on a little bit and made it the way I think an 883 should look. And when I'm not doing any kind of serious riding, just a nice relaxed little cruise around town, I'd love to have one of these things. But I can't drop six grand on a used bike with the limitations that this has. Right. I can't pick this up as something to tool around with and have fun with or do a custom build of when the used market is that strong. And the and it's artificial because there's so goddamn many of them. You can't tell me that many people are willing to pay that for this right now. It's just because they got hosed on it to begin with and they're getting hosed to buy this more expensive bike. So there's this obligation to get this price out of it. And I can't go there. You know, I just can't go there. And I would, I I want to be a Harley fan so badly, you know, Mm -hmm. I really do. But this, I, it, uh, there's things stopping me, you know, when I can get the, the equivalent Japanese thing for a third of the price or less. I mean, what it really sounds like is, I mean, so obviously if you're going to buy this for a lot, but you're going to sell it for a lot, then, you know, it's basically, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like the housing market where as long as it's always going up or it's going to stay about the same, it doesn't really matter what you pay, but it's, it's, it's priced and it works as a stepping stone, but you're really struggling to own this bike right and yeah i you know i'm sure when i said the worst bike in the world this week is the 883 sportster people are going to be expecting me to trash on its reliability or the handling or the size or whatever no i don't have an issue with any of that right this is as a motorcycle it's actually kind of brilliant and i've ridden one and they do kind of feel oddly satisfying to ride but the problem is this barrier to entry on the used market because anyone that doesn't have something available and readily accessible under 5000 on the used market right now is going to be struggling for brand loyal customers in the future when new bike sales pick back up. Right. And so, I don't know, this was sort of a status. This is a holdover from Harley's previous top of the heap, king of the pile status and this is a big warning sign for the future and you know this could be the thing that really really causes big problems for harley because i've gotten to a point in my life you know where you know i started out thinking you know harleys and crews are the coolest bikes ever then i went through a phase of going to the complete opposite spectrum and now i'm a much more sort of balanced middle person i'm like yeah there's probably room in my life for a cruiser as well i wonder you know, how could I make some steps about doing that? And then looking into this, it's like, no, like I, I can't, I can't begin to spend that kind of money right. for a 15 year old sportster. I can't do it. There's so many better ways to spend your money on the used market. Mm-hmm. And since we know no one's buying new right now, 
in terms of creating new riders, Harley is way behind on this. So get shit together and do something about it, Harley. Because honestly, as much shit as we talk, we don't want to lose Harley Davidson. And this is the very early stages of the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. Look, there's one right here. 1987 Sportster 883, $4,000. I would be hard pressed to come up with any bike from 1987 that even in Denver, this is 67,000 miles on it. $4,000 for an 87 Sportster was 67,000 miles. Maybe oh, wait, no, I've... sorry. It's 6,800 miles, but whatever. It doesn't matter. It's 1987. Maybe a VMAX with under 1,000 miles. In absolute pristine condition, I I can't think of what else would would fetch that price. Yeah, yeah, nineteen eighty seven exactly for four thousand dollars, you can get yourself a pretty sweet V Max instead, or you can have this eighty seven Sportster that's just whatever. Like, what in the hell is this all about? I yeah, this is bad news for Harley Davidson. So. Oh, 89 Harley Sportster. Over $10,000 in extras, chrome, and maintenance. Don't Good care. Yeah, great. <laughs> awesome, bro. Awesome. Okay. Uh, this is almost like... I don't want to start getting negative about like Harley as a company. I I, it's just this weird dynamic where the used value, and even to some degree the new value of Sportsters, is complete baloney. So I think we should just take a break for a moment yeah let's do it okay and we're back and let's talk bikes again so i had this experience and okay so i had this experience at the bar the other day that really put me off right so anytime i see people riding i like to talk to them about their bikes you know it's obvious because we have a motorcycle podcast i love talking about bikes and i love talking to people about their bikes right Mm. even if it's a bike i dislike i get excited about that bike when i meet someone excited about that bike right right so you know it seems that i could see how people could get the idea you know if they've never met me just listening to the show that i'm not a Harley fan, right? But the reality is that if I bump into you and you're on your Harley, like I will enthusiastically try to talk to you about you and your Harley and find out what you love about it. And I'll bring up points that I love about it and all of that. Right. Right. You know, kind of like I said in the last episode, like in, in these moments here, I have these opinions and everything, but the truth is in the real world, I'm every motorcyclist's best friend, and I love all bikes out in the real world. And so I'm at the I'm at the bar, and we're playing pool and just doing whatever. It happened that I didn't ride that day. I can't remember why. Um, I think there was a bunch of shit I had to move at work, so I needed my truck. Um, it was. It was a catering job I had to do, so I needed the truck. But this couple comes in, and they're a bit older. And I'm just like, hey, you know, what'd you ride? I'm like, what do you got? 
And they're like, oh, we're on this hardtail, whatever. And I'm like, all right, cool, cool, you know. And the guy keeps talking to me about, like, engine mods that he's done or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you know. And I'm, you know, sort of in the back of my head, I'm thinking a little bit like, I don't really see the value in trying to do all that stuff to a bike. But, like, whatever. He's into it. So I'm automatically excited about it, right? Right. And then at some point, I go out for a smoke or whatever, and I see the bike. And I actually did like the look of it. It was very clean. It was very simple. And, you know, that's a that's a look that I quite often like, especially in cruisers. And, you know, besides the fact that I didn't like the handlebars, everything else on it was, you know, pretty good. If it was my bike, that's kind of how I probably would have done it. And I mentioned that to him. And, you know... He comes out for a smoke and his wife does too, whatever. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't normally go for cruisers, but I really do like this one. And his wife's like, <laughs> hold on. This ain't a cruiser, right? Mm-hmm. This is like an O3 hardtail, right? Like this is the definition of cruiser. And she's like, this ain't a cruiser. No, no. She's like, this thing will do like 180 miles an hour or whatever. And I'm just thinking like, wow um okay uh i'm just like what can i say to like let her know i'm on her side but what she's saying isn't correct you know and i'm just like well i'm sure it's fast and everything it's but you know cruisers like a style of bike you know, there are fast crews, you know, and I'm just thinking to myself, all right, if I just say VMAX, I'm going to completely lose these two, <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, you know, what, and and she just wasn't having any of it, you know? She's like, you don't know what you're fucking talking about and blah, 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 blah. And she like sort of storms off and, and even her husband was like, yeah, sorry about her. Like, you know, but whatever. And that's kind of an attitude, like. I guarantee you, she's got that whole routine chambered at all times, just ready to go. Right. Because I can tell you right now that the mindset that she has is is, is fairly common, especially for people who heavily modify their bikes, that, you know, your credibility is in, in what you know and what you ride, and it's directly derived from how much you can tell other people that they're wrong. Maybe. Yeah. But in any case, he, he kept going on about his shovel head that he had running off of NOS and whatever, and the higher compression pistons and this and that, whatever. And he's like, Oh yeah, it makes like, you know, 228 horsepower or something. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't know about that, but I'm thinking, well, I mean, it still probably is, you know, a fast Harley and I'm sure it's fun to ride. So cool. You know, you got this, this shovel head that you've done this too. So like, you know, hats off to you and you know, you seem excited about it. So, you know, cool in my book. Right. But I was saying like, you know, like, oh, and my bike's a V twin too. Like, you know, there's a lot to be said for that engine design. There's a lot of great applications, you know, and I started talking about my Superhawk and Ducatis a little bit and they were just like zoning out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't, they, they were absolutely not willing to meet me halfway on anything basically. Right. right. And I think everyone has run into this couple basically one way or another. And there's still a huge number of these people around, which is odd to me because. Well, here's the thing. These people aren't just, don't just have this attitude 
with non-Harley riders or even the more casual Harley riders, they would have the same attitude towards their clones. Yeah. So the thing is, like, it, it seems pretty natural to me that motorcycling, for me, is a lot better when there's a community surrounding it. When mm. I can, even if I got no one to ride with, you know, like if I moved to a new town, right? If everyone I knew just like died of some sort of plague, I could find people to ride with and I could find people to talk bikes with, you know, because when, you, when you're really into riding, life without your bike is just sort of life, right? <laughs> and when when there's a way to sort of, you know, bring it up, right? You know, I say all the time, like, I just spend all my time at work just hoping someone brings up the subject of motorcycles <laughs> and no one ever does, right? And, you know, that's why I like doing this show. That's why I like listening to other motorcycle podcasts. I can sort of get that fix, right? Right. You know, if it's raining, I'm like, oh, I really need a new episode of some show to drop today. Like, I really need that. Or if it's like, you know blizzard conditions i really need a podcast to keep me going or someone to talk to about you know what i'm working on the garage or what my plans are for riding next spring or whatever right but this sort of older group of harley riders especially i'm not saying this doesn't exist in other areas of bikes because it's it certainly does but it's most prevalent in in this situation and you know, these tend to be the, the people that have all the myths about safety gear as well. I don't know why, but there seems to be a big overlap there. This also is a big overlap with the people that maintain that if it's not a Harley, it sucks. And usually these people think there's only a couple flavors of Harleys that are even acceptable to them either. Well, it's the logical extension of the whole thought process. Right. Which is, Harleys are superior, but my Harley is superior to other Harleys. And that's, I mean, that didn't happen overnight. That's been something that's been fairly curated over a long period of time. Right. And so I was thinking, like, you know, what is it about this that really bothers me? You know, because if I don't want to talk to these people, I don't have to talk to them. I don't have to interact with them. It's just naturally me that, you know, I want to. So I'm a little off put like, oh, you know, I wish I could have made this little moto friend here, but now I can't. And that's fine. There's plenty of people you're just never going to click with no matter what. Right. But it's, it's really like sort of disheartening when you're like, oh, here's this like obvious link between us. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm sure there are super elitists in the world of like, I don't know, kayaking, right? But I mean, is, is it to a point where there's this like really large contingent that there's these certain kayakers that are like, well, if you're not kayaking in this state with this brand of kayak, I don't even want to talk to you. Right. And that's a little strange to me. Now, I think they tend to be these older folks and they tend to be this way because they sort of existed and sort of grew up with motorcycles in a time without all the media that's around motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm going to posit that there's a lot of people 
that would secretly kind of prefer that these folks didn't exist. <laughs> and I think I'm going to posit that a lot of Harley riders anymore don't even really want these people around. But because of the way the Harley culture has evolved, for some reason, these people seem to have the most street cred. And I've noticed that they complain a lot about, they always say like, oh, well, you know, someone just goes out and like just gets a Harley and all of a sudden they're a biker, you know? Well, it is a consumer product. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. That's how that works. Right. They've set some sort of impossibly high bar with incredibly specific requirements in order for you to be a biker in their eyes. It's kind of like, it's, it's a kind of a similar paradigm to the everyone go, everyone driving slower than me is, is, is a wuss and everyone driving faster than me is a maniac. The bar for what constitutes a real biker is one, you know, is a plank distance below my exact skill level. And my level of veterancy, you know? Yeah. And so I was thinking about this and and how long can this really go on, right? One generation. I, well, I, I've, you know, I've definitely done a lot of complaining about hipsters and stuff as well on this show. And I realized there's a way that all these worlds can intersect in a way that's really pleasing for me. So no, this I'm... is this is another bit of like moto, moto domus, right? I've noticed that with flat track racing coming back, it is a scene completely dominated by dudes in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. And some of them are going for the Indians or whatever, but a lot of them really seem to prefer like modding a Harley of some sort of way. To do this flat track racing. Well, there aren't any cheap Indians around, so... Right. Yeah, it's an expensive thing to do, but it is gaining some traction, and it is sort of moving up, right? I mean, there's um, Wiggins from um, um, Creative Riding. Yeah, he's flat track racing. Also a Hoosier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, he's not that much younger than us. I feel like at some point I may have met him before we moved out here. Because I definitely knew a Josh Wiggins, but it's probably not the same dude. But anyway, doesn't matter. The point is that I think a lot of the cafe racer guys, before they ultimately do go to my theory of the 90s sports bikes, because that's totally going to happen, a lot of them are going to try to get Harleys and fix them up and or buy new ones or whatever. And it is going to piss off these old guys to high hell and force some sort of event where they either just stop riding or cheer the fuck up. (laughs) Right? I think the best possible thing that could happen for the American motorcycling industry is for young people to start buying Harleys and not being all that Harley about it. Right? Right. I want to see like young guys buying Harleys, wearing proper gear, 
waving, being super positive, like super happy, you know, and just pissing these old dudes off. And I want Harley as a company to embrace it rather than, you know, have this younger generation of riders coming in and make the expectation like, well, okay, you just cut your bike, which is okay, but you really need to become bad to the bone like the rest of us. <laughs> Harley needs yeah. to be like, welcome new riders. We're so stoked that you're here. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when you walk into a Harley dealership, there it doesn't matter where. They're all the same. Where there's this expectation, you walk in, they're like, oh, so you're going to buy a bike? Well, I'll have you know, you've got a long way to go. You right. know? Like, uh, the the woman behind the parts counter has got a panhead. So, you know, she is a panhead. She's pretty important. It's like, you want, you want to become a Harley rider? It's like, oh, you want to become a Doors fan? Right, exactly. <laughs> Doors fans aren't made. They're born. Right. <laughs> exactly. Where, you know, but you, you kind of nailed it. It's like, it is a consumer product, right? right. <laughs> it is an expensive one, but, it, you know, but uh, at the same time, you can't ignore that there's a lot of culture around motorcycling as well. You know what it's kind of like? And this is something I've noticed is... This is act okay. So I'm gonna reveal a horrible, horrible truth about myself. Okay. I vape, <laughs> and I have noticed a very similar attitude among vapors, which is very similar to the Harley market. Oh yeah, some people are weird about vaping. Where, you know, like, I'm just like, well, I I spent like 60 bucks on this thing, and it's lasted me two years, and it's light, it fits in my pocket, I can drop it a bunch, and it's it does the job for me. And some guy's like, dude, you need to spend like $240 on it, and it needs to go up to like 200 watts of power that you can put through this thing. And you need to buy the juice that's 1% as strong as the normal stuff because you're going to make clouds so big that right. in order to get any nicotine whatsoever, or in order to not die of nicotine poisoning, right. it needs to be that weak. And it's like, I, I, I just want nicotine without cancer at a reasonable price like like, but like and everyone behind the counter will like like i've gone into different stores and like they'll pull their rigs out of their pockets or even worse will be wearing them on a necklace oh my god that's like i didn't sign up for this okay like I, i just wanted some nicotine that's it and there's a similar attitude in a lot of places where even when you're going into the store to spend money, like you're trying to give them money and there's a sort of like standoffish reputational thing at stake mm-hmm. in the perp in the in the process of you trying to give them money. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. It's so it, it, what what I said, you know, what I think really bothers me about these these riders that tend to be older, and you know, you have to meet their bar, right? And 
whether that means you need to be part of uh, an MC or a straight up biker gang or that you just need to have a certain look or I think it's also just like they expect that you're supposed to have some sort of immediate reverence for them. Right. And, you know, I'm I'm much more likely to sort of give everyone sort of an equal amount of recognition. I think for the non-Harley people, we're going to have to link the the kids in the hall sketch. Oh, yeah. About the Doors fan. Yeah. But the the thing is... I think that most people anymore are really put off by these folks because for me, there should be room for everyone that just wants to just ride a motorcycle and not be super into it. And for everyone that's like us, like really enthusiastic about it. And I don't think it's very good for, you know, the community at large that these people are around, but I also recognize that they're not required to be part of the community, but you can't ignore that in the United States, these people, for whatever reason, seem to demand some sort of voice and respect that I think might not be earned. It's a, it's a weird thing where. So basically I just want hipsters to outbreed them. (laughs) Yeah, that's it's not bad. Well, I mean, also, it's, it's I would like where... to be able to purchase and ride a Harley Davidson without having this stigma around it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's one of those. I things... so desperately want to be able to do that. I want that to fit with who I am because I think a big, a big, loud, comfy, rambly, whatever cruiser. There's room for that in my life, but, you know, I, I don't think I can deal with other Harley people that way. It's kind of part of the world we live in today. Back in the 80s, 90s, even in the 2000s, if you had a particular skill or talent, you could be standoffish and a bit of a loner and an asshole, and it worked just fine for you, as long as you were talented. And, you know, like... Evil Knievel couldn't do what he did back then, today. Assuming that, like, the motorcycle world hadn't moved on and he just showed up today. In the age of the internet and everyone constantly being interconnected, and not just relying on just your talents, but your connections and who you associate with and, you know, working together, all of the huge kind of social, cultural accomplishments in the last decade, have all been pretty much over the internet and out of this interconnectedness. And we all have this sort of implicit social contract. And when you meet somebody you don't know at all, that you're still following, you know, this kind of protocol. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, for somebody you've never met before, you're, you're throwing this enthusiasm at them and, you know, assuming the best of them and all this. And then... While everyone's following that kind of base rule set, all of a sudden it just gets immediately shoved back in your face by this particular kind of person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she hit me with, when when that old couple, like his wife, she hit me with just 
every stereotype and and every everything that you would think she would have. You know, there was like, well, have you been to Sturgis? That that was asked. I was like, well, <laughs> actually, we do this other thing. We go to MotoGP. That's like our sort of pilgrimage every year. And you know, she was quiet for a moment because she obviously didn't even know what that is, which is fine. But because I haven't gone to Sturgis, all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, this is this is more points against you, bro. You know, I've kind of gotten to the point now um, because now about sixty percent of the shirts that I wear to work are all MotoGP related or at right. least motorcycle related, and people will see my shirt and be like, oh wait, what's that? Uh, oh. This is for MotoGP. It's basically the Formula One of motorcycles. Would you like to know more? Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten to this point now where, like, there's a good 15% of the office that are just, like, kind of steering clear of me. Right. Because I went on about motorcycles for a bit too long. Right. And then everybody else. And then there's, like, another 15% who who were really into it and really interested and, and were just enthralled about the whole thing. And some of them even started watching it, but then I would imagine that you and me and probably everyone listening to this show is that person at work that anyone who is thinking of buying a motorcycle comes to you and goes like, so I'm thinking of buying a bike like, what do you think? Well, I've this is sort of my budget. What should I get? Let's I think put a everyone on the calendar, <laughs> right? Everyone, I think everyone listening is probably that guy at work as well and knows that feeling and probably knows that sort of extra joy and fulfillment you get about sort of sharing this world with other people because it's so exciting. And it's not like you know, it's it's not a race. That nobody wins, right? There's no yeah. reason to be exclusive about it. You can share stories this must and be how trips and ride infinitely without losing anything for yourself, right? I talk about other podcasts on this show because guess what? There's no barrier to how many podcasts you can listen to. We're not we're not competing with Cleveland Moto for a time slot, right? There's infinite room to share as much as you want, right? The idea that someone's on a motorcycle that isn't your brand and that like bothers you is insane. It doesn't hurt them any way whatsoever. It has no impact on them, except it could have a positive impact in that there's someone to share this thing of just motorcycles with. But when you close those doors, you're only really hurting yourself and, you know, putting a few people off, right? I mean, when you when you get somebody into riding and you get you see them like get their bike, I mean, that must be how the Mormons feel when they convert somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there are definitely, yeah, I'm probably responsible for like another like 10 riders being on the road, 
right? Mm-hmm. I dad had stopped riding for what twenty something years until I got a bike and he started riding oh, again. Oh no, he had the uh, the scooter in in Japan. That's true. So yeah, he'd taken like fifteen years off, ten years off, somewhere somewhere around there. So it would have been like ninety seven. He got it, and then he started back up again in probably about oh two thousand nine. Is that when he got the the ZX? I did my first year of college in oh seven, and I think it was a couple years after because he only had it a couple years before we left. So it must have been oh nine. I'm gonna say it was twelve years. There we go. That sounds right. So yeah, dad taking twelve years off, and then oh no, like, no, sorry, you know he got it in like ninety seven. So probably 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Nine, 10 years. Anyway, he'd taken a break and I, there's a strong argument that if I had, you know, sort of really taken off and started buying bikes like crazy, then he may have just left it there. Right. Or it would have taken a longer break. Um, I do remember every time we came over, he would constantly complain about, you know, oh, I've got to go help Peter fix his. His shadow, and now I gotta go help Peter fix his, his CB900. Now we gotta go deal with the 350. But you could tell he, he loved, loved it. it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> he's buying all these shit box bikes. <laughs> <laughs> it probably brought him back to his teenage years. Oh, yeah. And then Mike got that KZ just because, like, I sat him down one day and I was just like, look. I have no reason to think you're going to love this other than I know you. And also it's insanely practical right now. You can get this bike for like 800 bucks and you know, mm-hmm. you're driving around this car that's costing you ridiculous amounts of money. Like go get a bike. And I broke down the economics of it to him and it, it was just a matter of months and, and he got a bike and we've been, you know, riding together and having fun ever since. And I feel, you know, that's something that I feel like these, you know, the Harley faithful aren't really doing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's a bunch of people that are going to immediately tell me I'm an asshole and that's wrong. And there's this community and blah, 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 blah. Of course, there's a big Harley community. You can go to any dealership and you can see the people hanging out. I'm saying there's a certain breed of cat that is doing more harm than good and not just the Harley community, but across the board sort of putting people off. Like they're kind of the reason motorcyclists still have a bit of a bad name. Right. I mean, like, can you, could you pop, do you think if I gave you like a full year and do you think you could track down a VMAX snob? That's a tall order. That's a very tall order. <laughs> you know, I wonder if, like, we just need to, like, say, screw the cost, and the next podcast bike needs to be a Harley, and we just try to, like, infiltrate the community. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what? What's what's, like, the cheapest Harley we could get that's sort of, like... <sighs> That's basically not an 883 that, that, you know, the cheapest Harley we could get that people will sort of be like, oh yeah, right on, man. That's a, that's a real bike. Yeah. What's the cheapest, not what's the cheapest motorcycle. What's the cheapest real bike that we could get our hands on. I think that's going to be like a late nineties sportster 1200. 
maybe. There's going to be something though. I mean, even even better if it's got some some questionable uh, decals. Yeah. You know, potentially like a tiny Confederate flag or or an Iron Cross. We're also going to need to like <laughs> find a snow rated helmet and disguise it as a not snow rated helmet. Because you know, like Scorpion makes um, helmets for Harley, and they're the ones with the flip down visor and stuff, and they're not snow. It's the only not snow rated helmet Scorpion makes, I think. HJC makes a similar one as well. But we need to get one and then like cover it in Harley stickers or something so we can be more accepted. Be like, well, I don't trust that guy because he's wearing a helmet, but it does say Harley on it, so okay. And we'll need to like find a way to like mount the the Cena like inside our jackets so they can't see. Because <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's weird. Like Harley guys, are like, well, it's all cool to have your phone and stuff with your bike, but it really all needs to be in the fairing. Well, no, they don't have their phones with them. They have their massive sound system, and they blare pop country on their XFM radio. For the whole world to hear. Yeah, I do like when the guys that are going by with like, the, you can just tell they've made this like playlist of classic rock and you know bad to the bone biker music, and they're really hoping that everyone notices. Like, oh, I've created the perfect soundtrack for riding this thing around town. I, we'd have which to- it's fun to talk about that guy, but I'm not really that annoyed by that guy. Like he's out there and he's 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 feeling cool. Mm-hmm. And he's having fun, so I'm totally fine with that guy. Like, I have no reason to dislike that guy. You know, mm-hmm. that guy listens to this show. That guy, you know, goes to the bike meetups, and that guy's fine if you're riding a Vulcan or a sport bike or whatever. It's this certain breed of cat that I wanna. I want that I'm talking about. If I had like an early Road King, you know, like just the first gen of of Road King, or you know, with a with a big fairing and a um or, or Electro Glide, like a first, like an early, like the first generation Electro Guide that came with XFM, and instead of blasting like country or classic rock it was just like blue eiffel and uh and and aqua and uh what oh else? god you're you remind me of the story so when i got my cb 900 uh, i've bought it for 700 dollars, and the only thing that was wrong with it was a dead battery because um it had the full vetter touring package on it so i had the windjammer fairing had side boxes and a top box and the side boxes had two extra brake lights each, and the top box had four extra brake lights. And what had happened was the brake reservoir had run low on fluid, and it wasn't uh, pushing the uh, brake light switch all the way into oh, so the it was off just position open all the time. So it was all brake lights all the time, and the owner <laughs> didn't realize this, and so it was draining the batteries. So all I had to do was service the front brake, and then put uh, a new battery and brake fluid in it, oh, and it he was like good stat- to go. He thought the stator had gone. Yeah, or- he had, he didn't know. He's like, it, yeah, I haven't been able to start it for like a couple years. 
So I just got it for like 700 bucks and there's nothing wrong with it. But it, like I said, it had the full Vetter everything on it, right? And it had a, it had a CD player <laughs> and speakers. And so like the first week I got it, I made this mix CD of all hardcore rap. <laughs> and just rode it around town, just <laughs> blasting Wu Tang everywhere. <laughs> it was wonderful, and I was still like, I was still in that mode where I was wearing like you know like a baseball, a backwards baseball cap and like leather goggles and crap like that, just riding around being an idiot. So like the music and what I was wearing and the bike and the aesthetic, like none of it made any sense to anybody. I used to get the weirdest fucking looks. I do really like the idea of riding around Sturgis where blasting your music is totally acceptable and just riding through, just riding through Sturgis blasting like a like a top 10 album of of um oh what's it called edm i don't know what. no uh what, what's the competition called uh euro oh eurovision eurovision oh like a gosh. eurovision album <laughs> like downtown sturgis peak season wouldn't it be great if like if we were billionaires, I would probably I this is the kind of kind of thing where I would go like, all right, Jesse James, I need you to make me an ABBA themed bike. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take Oh yeah. You know, um you know really what the uh, what the Bergman's missing is the sound system. Yeah, that would be a big middle finger to that community. <laughs> Ride a Bergman through the middle of Sturgis, blasting ABBA. Okay, so anyway, my original point here, I'm going to repeat one more time, is um, I think... We did go off, go off on a bit of a spiteful tangent. Yeah, it was fun. It the, was fun. The, uh, the way forward, I think, is... Now, it, it sucks because, as mentioned before, Harley has this weird barrier... Where if you're trying to do this on a budget, you can't really do it, right? No one's going to finance you for five or six thousand dollars on a Sportster, right? So we need to wait for some sort of event to happen where finally the value on Harley's hits the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but when it does, and when people have the means. We need, we really do need a new generation of Harley riders because I want to be friends with Harley riders. But the plain truth is because I talked to a lot of people and this couple and this particular experience that happened last week is not the only time. They just tend to be standoffish with me. And, you know, definitely not all the time, but half the time. They're standoffish with me. Now, the other half that I run into, nicest people in the world, right? But, you know, the, the half of the sports bike riders that I talk to are not standoffish at all, right? I, I, mean, I mean, here's the thing. Sorry, half of them. Like, none of them are standoffish at all. The the weird BM, even the guys on, like, the, the BMWs that you can tell are super elitist about their BMW 
you know, it's only within the category of adventure bikes that they're like, yeah, yeah. they're like, don't talk to me about a Tenere, but I'll talk to you about your Super Hawk, right? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I- I've met people in parking lots where I've walked up to somebody on an R1 where they've got cords showing on the rear tire. And I can just walk straight up and be like, okay, dude, awesome bike, love it, but like, this is downright reckless and stupid. You need to swap out your tire. And the guy would, I can just come up, stretch somebody, not introduce myself, and just like throw that right at them. They'll be like, yeah, I know. I've been meaning to get to it for a while. And you know, they'll, they'll be almost apologetic. Right. There's no way you could get away with that towards a Harley rider. Or this or, brand of Harley yeah, rider. If you were just rolling the dice, you wouldn't think it'd come up in your favor. Exactly. Uh, so, again, the solution is yeah, we really need to sort of, rather than talking so much shit about Harley and them, we just need to sort of put our money where our mouths, is, our mouths are or whatever and sort of join that community. Right. And I think hipsters are the the way to spearhead this, right? There's a certain <laughs> yeah. amount of like millennials that will have the purchasing power for this very soon. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait for that. Like when their ship comes in, when they're like, okay, I've gotten at least half of my student loans paid off. I can start thinking, you know, my student loan payment has now just only become like, 15% of my income so I can now afford to do other things like I own a house now and this and that like I can I can think about a new bike purchase right mm-hmm. I have no problem with Harley having the the huge domination in the market right because it it's a good bike right or they are good bikes they don't have the reliability problems anymore and if you go in for that if you like that look they do it better than anybody, right? Mm-hmm. I'll be the first to admit that most Harleys look better than Goldwings, right? I think the Goldwings mechanically, technically a superior machine, but if cool is what you're going for, Harleys are fucking cool. You know, that's mm-hmm. what they're designed for. And, you know, the hipster sort of group that wants to look this certain way on their bike and all of that. Well, this is the perfect machine. It's a brand like uniquely poised to that, you know, sacrifices performance for style, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I can think of a lot of bikes that I love that sacrifice style for performance, right? Why are all the 600s identical bikes? Because they're all going for this insane efficiency yeah. for performance, and they sacrifice a lot of style. Therefore, well, they all have is, to look exactly well, the same, what, and they don't have a lot of character. I think this all ties into my number one criteria for a bike, which is it shouldn't lie. The bikes that are going for super performance and are all specced and designed towards that, and that's what they do, they're awesome. The bikes that go for style and quirkiness... They're awesome. The bike that's built for style and pretends to be about performance, like, that's where it falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I don't think we're going to get really deeper towards, like, any clear answer here. But I just sort of want... 
I don't know. The thing that I just decided I want to talk about a lot at this point was just that I'm, I'm more and more frustrated that I can't bring myself to join this Harley club. Cause this is a whole bunch of people that I think I would get along really great with. And I think I could enjoy these bikes so much, especially with the kind of long distance riding I like to do. There's just such a huge amount of them and it comes with all this baggage. Right. Yeah. And I think it's what's holding Harley back right now. I think it's why they're seeing slumps in sales. And if you look at Harley's advertising, they're going after women. They're going after Latinos. They're going after every minority, really. And they are making it's so a late, ver- though. Exactly. It's so late and it is minor, right? Mm-hmm. These are the ads. But when you walk into the dealership, the culture is the same culture it's always been. And Harley needs to embrace the hipster. And, and like, they only just throw these tiny little bones. They'll be like, oh, you know, we, we brought back some AMF paint schemes on the Sportsters. Isn't that cool? Well, that's not enough, right? Yeah. And making the Street 500 in India isn't enough, right? I mean, how about like an engine redesign on the 883 and the 1200? And you also make, you know, and what if you did like, well, we've already been over this. There needs to be a new, uh, 883 motor and a new 1200 motor that Eric Buell needs to design. Well, Eric Buell's doing an electric bike now. I did not know about this. Oh yeah. You didn't know. Oh, um, I'm trying let's look up the name of the company here. Um, Eric Buell is back and he is doing, Oh, what's the name of it? Vanguard. Vanguard makes... Also, uh, solid motorcycle name. Solid motorcycle name, <laughs> as we've already talked about. It's, um, yeah, the, the weird concept pictures for it are a little strange, but, you know, who knows what's actually going to come out of this. I see inverted forks in a monoshock, so I'm cool yeah. with it. I mean, it's not unbuel, but it's, oh, this is a con. This is a yeah. Okay, yeah, it's not really. Who knows what it's going to be? But yeah, they've picked up Eric to do this electric bike thing for them, and sadly, he's not working at Harley like we think he should be shaking up things over there. But hey, he's around. He's you know, he's making a paycheck. So there we go. I don't know much about this. Um, Vanguard company, but you know, I mean, hopefully it becomes something cool, right? Like, I don't see a reason this can't be a thing. The I think they already make these electric uh, bicycles. I, I mean, really, in concept, I think there's there's at some point there's going to be, you know, an electric bike. That's similar to what Tesla is doing, where the bike will show up and it'll be like the Model T that just completely changes the game and gets mat- gets widespread adoption. Because when you think about it, oh, what do you need? A brushless motor and some OEM parts, some in- a monoshock frame, some inverted forks handlebars everything else after that is kind of up to you and whatever you want to put together lego style 
at some point, someone's going to figure out the formula that really makes sense. So it kind of makes sense that given how much of a struggle uh, Buell has had getting the support he needs and the funding he needs and the supply network he needs to make this really happen and how many times he's tried. And he's never failed because the bikes were bad. It's always been internal politics, um, not having control of the vision, not having the supply network, not having the startup cash. So given how cool everything he's made so far has been, this may really be the place where it works out for him. And I really hope it works. Yeah. I mean, we have to assume this is battery and frame, right? <laughs> uh, if you do notice, I did notice that um, there is a particularly large six-piston front brake on this bike concept here. So it must have had something to do with Eric, this rendering. Oh, yeah. It um, is a little too... Tip- well, at least at least this concept photo has brakes and two wheels and a headlight and a seat that is thicker than a baby's foreskin. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, this still has a lot of the things on it that, you know, really bothers me about concept bikes. Like, for example, I don't see a place to put your feet on this. That's a big one, yeah. I mean, you know, I know it's just a concept drawing, but a place to put your feet would be a a nice place to start. Um, It doesn't have any gauges of any kind. I assume people are going to want to know when they're uh, running out of battery, but, you know. I'm going to save this link because people are going to have no idea what we're talking about. It's true. You know what would be great on an electric bike? I just thought of this. Um, it might be difficult with the weatherproofing, but rather than a traditional gauge, since it's not a tank or an airbox or something in front of you, and it's not necessarily going to have crazy vibration or need a whole lot of space for this to work, is just a a screen display just on the very top of the, you know, air quotes, tank. That gives you all the information you'd ever want. Mm, there's never a good angle to look at it and look for. I mean, think about how... Well, it could be on top of the headlight housing then or whatever. But that would be yeah. an interesting way to go. Yeah. I could almost go... I would I would almost be on board. Rather than have the single gauge, you know... Oh, you just get a Speedo. No tack. Um, oh, the Harley style. We'll give you we'll give you a neutral light, and we'll give you a fuel gauge integrated into it. Um, you know, there's a similar thing that the the Bonnevilles have done. I would almost prefer a no LCD, no gauge system where it's just split down the middle, where on top of the headlight you've got like. For a bike that revs to 8,000 RPM, you've got like eight LEDs down this side. And for the Speedo, it's in five mile an hour increments that go down this side. And it's just lights that count up. Yeah. I could almost go for that over like the single tack design. And maybe like further down, you've got some for 
you know, engine light, neutral, kickstand, all that stuff. I'd almost prefer that over... I know it still must be a thing, but it's been such a while since I've ridden a lot of bicycles. It was a really high ticket, like high price, you know, slick, so fancy kind of item back in the day. But you know the old cycling computers? Oh, yeah. Right. I don't know if people still use those. I bet they do. Or they have something attached to their phone that probably does it for them. A lot of people use them for supermotos. Real? Oh, because they, Cause they don't they're changing the... the tire size. So well, you know. no, because they don't have a Speedo. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, you're right. Um, but also, you're changing your tire sizes, so even if you did have a Speedo to begin with, it you would become useless. It, yeah. right. uh, anyway, I wonder if um, electric bikes will sort of go back to some sort of handlebar-mounted computer system, right? Because those were interesting. Those old like cycling computers would give you just sort of enough, right? So they would calculate your distance, and they do a trip, and they tell you your speed. And of course, you know you'd have to you'd have to do a whole thing where you set up the sensor on the edge of the wheel, and you'd have to mark out space and whatever. Go but, find a go find like one of those um, roadside speed cameras that tell you your speed and right gauge it. Figure out how much they're inflated by and yeah. do the math. You'd have to do a lot to set them up. And sometimes they'd even tell you, like, you know, the air temperature outside and everything. Um, I wonder if motorcycles might move towards something like that, just a little LCD handlebar mounted sort of thing, rather than this big gauge cluster inside the fairing. Right? Because mm-hmm. if you got like a big cruiser or something like anymore, it's almost messy to have this these gauges up in front of the handlebars. Because like, how do you make it look elegant, right? I mean, if you go back and you look at you know uh, UJM bikes, right? From certain angles, the display, uh, the instrument clusters all look you know really beautiful. But when you really kind of stare at it head on, if you're if you divert your eyes from the forks and the front wheel and the headlight and just look at that gauge cluster. It's a hot mess. There's mm-hmm. shit wires running everywhere and it all like creates this rat's nest of wires behind the headlight and it's not particularly elegant or really that well thought out. So I'm generally of the opinion and I really actually like what the Norge has done. And it's almost like a standard for me. Not the specific layout, but the philosophy behind it. Mm -hmm. Where there are really, there's, there's three things I need to know for my gauge. I want to know how fast I'm going. I want to know what, um, how much fuel I have left. And I want to know... I want my indicators for turn signals, neutral light, check engine light, kickstand, ABS, kind of those three categories of things. And it's okay if those take up a minimum amount of space or a maximum amount of space, but those things need to be available very quickly at a glance. And then everything else you want to throw in there, you know, what the temperature setting on my heated grips are what the 
ambient temperature is, what my trip meter's at, um, even my revs. Like, all of that information can be condensed into a quarter of the space as the other three things. And even, vo- even like, surface area-wise, it doesn't matter. But all that extra stuff needs to kind of be doesn't need to be as accessible and the first three just need to dominate your attention when you look down Mm -hmm. and that's really all there is to it and you could almost have like a second uh cluster of gauges for all that extra information well i'm thinking back to this one cycling computer that i used to have that i got for like christmas one year or something back when i was really into riding bicycles namely when we were living in japan because it was the most badass way to get anywhere well actually i was a little more into skateboarding then but anyway this cycling computer i had was pretty darn badass and it had this one really unusual feature to it which was so it was just lcd but um you could turn on or off visibility of the various functions Now, it wouldn't replace, you know, it wasn't like, okay, it can show you four bits of information and it can only show you four and you pick which four or something like that. No, like all of the six different things it would tell you or whatever were on like two different screens. So you pressed a button to switch from like one screen of things or no, no, it wasn't even that fancy. No, it was all on one screen. And so it was as simple as lights coming on or lights coming off. Right? It was just on or off, basically, except for the bits that had to change numbers like the speed, which was up in the corner, right? Mm. And you could cycle through the things and press a button and just have it not show you that information, right? So if you're riding along and it's like, I don't care what the temperature is, or I don't care how far I've gone. Like, I don't want to know how far I've gone yet, right? Or I'm too afraid to know what the temperature is right now. Exactly. So I sort of imagine something for a motorcycle instrument display. Wouldn't it be easier to have just a full-on digital display for everything? And from there, you just decide how you want it set up. It's so bespoke, and it's all... It's all so much hardware driven. It's not, you don't really have. But if you had this system, like Honda could just put it on everything. So it would just be this Honda system. And Honda could just you could give totally you do that. the software. Would, well, right. But like for just the ease of putting it on everything, that certainly would have to become cheaper at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And then you could just, would you buy your bike or they could set it up for you at the dealership? You know, be like, what style of gauges do you like? Do you like, you know, fake electric needles or whatever? What's important to you? Do you want to know the temperature engine? And they can just set it up to be whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem that complicated. Can't Honda, just hire us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would have to be like manufacturer-wide for the economies of scale. But Honda's trying to go universal on so many things with their bikes already anyway yeah they do have so many world-class models right hell i can choose to have kilometers in celsius instead of fahrenheit and miles per hour on my italian i can have my bike read off in italian 
if I want to. Exactly. I almost did, but then I realized that would probably be a big mistake. Right. That would that would backfire pretty hard at some point. So, yeah, how much more difficult is it really? And then if at some point you change your mind, it, it's as simple as plugging your bike into your laptop and just changing the settings. No, nah, you can just do, even do a hard reset with a key. Right. But I'm saying, like... You know, have some sort of app that you can put on your phone or on your laptop or whatever that you can use to like really set up how you want your display to be. Mm -hmm. Like, what size do you want everything to be and show up on that screen? You know, and do you want it to cycle between a few screens like your like your phone does? So I have this set of information on this screen and this set of information on this, and you can move it around and resize it. And Mm -hmm. you know, do you want to have uh, Valentino Rossi background behind all of it. And, <laughs> yes. Know, right? I mean, why not? It doesn't seem that complicated, right? Well, um, if this is the level of organization that you can have off of Walmart smartphones, it's. I don't uh, see why this is something you can't do on your motorcycle display. So... It does seem really trivial, given that, yes, a $150 Chinese Android phone can do many of these things very easily. And really, these all all should be things that any motorcycle is capable of. There is a cost savings analysis to it, and there is kind of like a in-for-a-penny, in-for-a-pound scenario here where... Well, we can keep everything to an ECU and this basic instrument computer that does all of these things for you. And if we want any kind of feature outside of that, we've got to make a step up. And, you know, they've they've basically done that with the Goldwing, with the whole infotainment system. That's just about to say, like, how much more complicated is this than CarPlay? It's not. In fact, CarPlay is a layer on top of the step before it, which is having a general purpose computer chip that can do all of these things. But, you know, I almost feel like the, um, the Goldwing kind of got a pass and all the manufacturers, all the Japanese manufacturers at least kind of got together and said like, okay, once we open Pandora's box, and we build this into all of our bikes, like, there's no going back, and there's this additional markup on every bike we sell, and we don't want to go there, we don't want to get into this arms race. I feel like there was, there, there was a, there was a backroom meeting about this, and everyone agreed, let's just not go there. It's possible. Okay, here. I want to take a little quick break here, and then I want to come back with something else, because I've got a hard topic that we need to talk about. And we're back. Okay, so the most wonderful thing has happened in MotoGP. Mm -hmm. We, We haven't talked about MotoGP for a while, like a specific race or anything, but, you know... We've been on an odd scheduling thing with recording and then dropping episodes that by the time the episodes would drop, it didn't really make sense. But 
We're recording the week that this race happened, so we're going to talk about it. Um, so Magello, right? Actually, I want to backtrack a little bit. And um, this season has been good so far, but until now, nothing has really happened to really set this season apart. There's been a couple amazing moments. There's been some spectacular crashes. And, you know, Marquez riding like an idiot and upsetting points and knocking riders out, you know, again, Moto Damas predicted that, you know, so in a lot of ways, the season's been kind of like, yeah, it's, it's panning out like we thought it was going to. And, uh, oh, I also want to talk about how Le Mans, um, Jakob Kornfile defied, uh, not the laws of physics, but, um, yeah, even if you're not a motorcycle person, you you saw this clip. Right. That clip of Jakob Kornfeld basically – I don't even know how to describe what he did with that bike and that jump. Uh, but when I was showing it to people at work, like at least a third of them were like, oh, yeah, I already saw that. Yeah. Like, it expanded outside of the motorcycling world and everyone just sort of lost their mind over it. And I'm wondering, is that a moment that's going to make the sport just a lot more popular? I hope so. I, it's kind of – it showed up because it was one of those just spectacular things. But in the age of the internet, it's kind of – there's all sorts of sports where you can witness that sort of moment. And it's just kind of like a 30-second attention holder and then it's gone forever. So I don't know if it will or not or if we've really seen any kind of – I don't know. I don't know if Dorna releases their stats or not, or if there's any way that the average person can measure what kind of impact that had. I don't know. It gained me a little bit of more credibility with people at work where I was like, check it out. The sport that I'm into has like worthy clips as well, guys. Yeah. So anyway, um, that was amazing. also another amazing, um, another amazing clip. Uh, if you want to look it up is, um, uh, Michele Piro's, or no, uh, Petrucci's crash, uh, in free practice, uh, oh, last yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he heist, well, he was coming down the straight doing 220 miles an hour and then went into a, uh, a tank slapper, recovered it, then locked up the, fr- well, didn't lock up the front. He, uh, he stoppied it in, Great in well in excess of 150 miles an hour, brought it back down, the rear slid out, and then high sided and probably flew about 30 feet in the air. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. But anyway, so what happened at Magello was one, everyone got super stoked that um, Rossi didn't get completely back to form. But made a solid podium mm-hmm. finish. It made that that, and that he was race for the podium. Up. He was speeding up in the second half of the race instead of slowing down. Right, and then um, most importantly, um, Lorenzo destroyed everybody. If Nick Harris had been on microphone, he would have called it a masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. The so I predicted that he was not only going to not win anything, Ducati was going to drop him. Now, up to this point in the season, his performance was poor enough that, yes, 
Ducati was dropping him. And I was well, not completely just, correct up until this last Sunday. Well, not just this season, but the entirety of last season as well. Uh, you, you know, one year after having won the whole thing. Right. Now, what's amazing is that, to me, he was making all these complaints about the bike that seemed so petty it seemed like total bullshit and right and you know the week before the race he was complaining about the shape of the gas tank and how that was really holding up you know his performance and you know in my world i was like on brand jorge like i love (laughs) it you know just complain about the shape of the gas tank that's what's stopping you but then something really interesting happened Ducati did change the shape of the gas tank, and he didn't just win, he fucking dominated. And as far as I can tell, that's the only change that they made, right? Yeah. So somehow his crazy, like, prima donna thing turned out to actually be what was holding him up. Now, my theory is that it wasn't actually holding him up. It was just that he needed his prima donna nature stroked yeah. in order for him to perform. He needed to be validated. Exactly. Is what you're saying. Yeah. That's what I think. Or maybe Jorge really just knows something that nobody else does about riding. And this is like his one little secret. And there's something about his style that incorporates a few elements that nobody else really thinks about in the same way. It could be. It could be. But now what was most shocking, this bomb that you dropped on me, because I've been sort of absorbed completely with work except for just squeezing in time like um, Sunday, very, very late Sunday night, like 1 o'clock in the morning being able to catch this race. I haven't even watched Moto2 or Moto3 yet. But I caught this race and I was just – I hate Lorenzo, but I love to hate him. But I was genuinely really happy for him to win this race. He mm. was so pleased. And it wasn't like when um, – what's his name, British guy? Um, what, Crutchlow. It wasn't like when Crutchlow wins, he just doubles down on the smugness. Jorge was really just over the moon, like beyond levels that people are normally happy to win races, right? Right. He was more excited – than when Jack Miller won, right? Right, yeah. He, there was, he was just absolutely just over the moon, and there was no one that could bring him down in any way. And even Rossi was happy for him. Yeah. And that's saying something. You know, Rossi in, the, in um, Park Ferme will normally just sort of exist on his own, right, with his own people and everything. But even Rossi, like, kind of went over to him and, like, Gave him a little mini hug and was like, you know, way to go. Like, yeah. like you know, props, you know. And, and, and like, Jorge was, like, super surprised that Rossi came up to him that way. He was just sort of motionless and stunned. Well, again, it's like everyone's been saying, you know, like, for the first half of the season, of the season on, of the, of last season on Ducati, everyone was reveling in the fact that, Lorenzo was doing horribly on the Ducati. And then by the end of the first season, it was just like, well, it's kind of what we expect now. 
And considering this guy is a four-time world champion, it's kind of... I think three-time. Uh, three-time in, in... Oh, no, two-time in GP yeah. and four-times because with, yeah, the 125 and 250 class. Yeah. But when everyone was looking at it, you know, after after... By the end of the first season, it was kind of just like, well, we could keep ragging on him, but it's kind of just cruel and sad at this point, and it reflects badly on us. Right. And then he finally, and then, you know, I was starting to get really pissed with Jorge at, you know, halfway through through what we've had in the season so far, because he's had, like, um, he had, like, three races in a row where he would pick the soft and medium tires. Right. And he would lead the race, but you he was guaranteed to fall off. And it's like, okay, you've just turned yourself into an obstacle. And then there was the crash at Le Mans, mm-hmm. which, I mean, especially with the Ducatis, where it's that really stiff frame and they're really quick on the straightaways and they've got the good um, corner exit speed. It was in, It was putting himself in that situation where it's like, you can't win, but what you can do really well is prevent Davizioso from passing you because of how the bikes ride and how they're set up. It's so hard for a Ducati to pass another Ducati. Right. And it was like, okay, well, now you're basically doing what a rookie would do to grab attention, to try it and, you know, make a splash like Zarco did in his rookie year. But... This is not the time in your career to be making these moves. It's it's the time in your career to be putting up results. Right. And it felt like total bullshit. And then out of nowhere, he does that same tire choice. And it's like, all right, well, here comes Lorenzo to screw over Dovey again. But no. No. It totally worked. And it all came together. And he's been completely vindicated. Right. And, you know, it used to be like, you know, never count Jorge out on any Sunday because he could have just pulled something out. You never knew. And so now that door is open again, and it's just that much more exciting that we have another contender. I don't think he's anywhere near any kind of championship title and just how bad. He said too many bad Exactly. He's got no hope of any sort of thing, but he is he has made everything for the rest of the season now way more interesting. Right. So this is like the best thing that could happen this year for just drama and you know, just how interesting everything is. Now, you dropped the bomb on me, right? We're sitting down to record. I didn't know this yet. That Honda has just signed him to Repsol for two years, the next two years. Is that right? So at the end of the season, he'll be switching to Honda Repsol. Now, this is amazing because now we've got Marquez, Lorenzo, 1-2, the two most hateable characters on the most hateable team. It's wonderful. And so Honda is going to be able to really take care of Lorenzo and his prima donna ways. And now I think we're really going to get the Lorenzo villain we've always wanted. Yes. Because now he really knows everyone underestimating him. And I think we might get in Lorenzo this perfect blend of Mark Marquez and Cal Crutchlow. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. 
So he's going to do all his like very Cal Crutchlow like complaining, but he's also going to be able to have that Mark Marquez. I'm on the top team smugness. Right. And as long as he pulls out enough wins to keep that going, he's just going to become the most outrageous character ever. Well, this is, well, now that he's on Honda Repsol, or he's on, now he's on a Repsol Honda, he has totally taken up the mantle of Max Biaggi. It's true. So, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, we're going to have to wait a full year. But if if we're sitting here one year from now, and Lorenzo's put up wins, more wins on the Ducati, and more wins on the Repsol, right? And he's being a big dick about it. Like, I might start buying Lorenzo gear to wear around. Like, <laughs> I I think I could be a Lorenzo fan if, but he's got to be just a completely double down on the on the hatefulness. Like, he's got to be just absolutely insane, right? His Instagram game needs to become even more annoying. He needs to, like, just... I mean, I wouldn't even mind a few, like, weird ethnic slurs coming out of him. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I'd like to see some more outrageous hairstyles. You know, the stripe? Okay, whatever. Like, we need a full-on mohawk. We need... um. I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing, like, you know, some mini dreads. At least uh, some cornrows would be nice. You know, just something really insane there. Um, no, he needs the inverted mohawk. Ooh, that's not bad. That's not bad. Or, you know, maybe that trihawk thing that, like, the dude from Prodigy used to have back in the 90s. <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd like him to like lose his Beats sponsorship and have to go with some other brand of headphones for him to listen to his music before the race. We need some, some headshots with, uh, heavily, like prominently featuring a thumb ring. Yeah. I think we need a new Lorenzo logo as well. I think the whole angel demon thing. Well, he's, well, he's got to change it again now because he's got the Ducati red 99. Right. He needs he needs something else Repsol, but it's gotta be just super annoying. Like Marquez has the ant, and I don't understand what the ant is all about. I don't know either. I we should look that we should really know. We should know why it's an ant. I don't know why, but a lot of people think it's a spider as well. I remember being in the merch booth in Austin and someone was like, Oh, have you got like one with the spider on it? And they're like, Oh no, we're all sold out of that. And I was a little like, it's not a spider, guys. Like, it's got six legs. Like, yeah. This is, this is elementary biology. Yeah. I mean, I know oh, it's a real stylized picture of an ant, but it's it's an ant, okay? Well, you also have to keep in mind that... Oh, that's what he needs to do. He needs to make his logo a spider. Like, mine's oh. got two more legs than, than Marquez. Like, I'm better. <laughs> that's... They need, yeah. Lorenzo needs a spider. How can you incorporate a 99 into a spider? There's well, got to be something he can do. Well, he can't do the spider because, like, well, the styling that they both have is very angular. And the fact that it's an ant on for Marquez is, like, the only thing separating it from, like, an offshoot Spider Man logo. Or. Yeah. 
like the spider clothing like ski brand like it's the fact that it's an ant is really the only thing separating it from those two stylistic choices like i don't know there's something that can be done lorenzo needs a spider worked into it It, absolutely it's gonna be one of those weird things because you know his leather's Maybe well, I mean, like a centipede, but it's only got 99 legs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much detail. It's not a good flag. It's not a good flag, but something. I'm going to work on. I'm going to workshop this. Anyway, so another big thing that happened to Mugello, Marquez lost the front, which uh, a lot of people talked about um, tire choices making that happen, but he was running the same front tire as everyone else. He just went overconfident. He lost the front. And most importantly, was not able to save it and made probably the biggest effort I've ever seen anyone make to try to save a crash. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went all the way across the track through that turn. The slid, the entire width of the track, right? On his elbow and his knee doing everything he could to try to pull it back up like he did at Valencia, right? And just, it wasn't in the cards. It was never going to happen. Given the turn that he was on, though, it was a steep downhill. Um, It was a steep downhill turn. And really, it was it was one of those turns where once that goes, there really is no recovering it. That's not what's important to me though. What's important to me is that I'm watching it. It really looked like he believed he was able to save it, and he just seemed a little stunned when it didn't happen. I made the analogy that it was like you know what if um one of the x men like went for their power? And then it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know? I think he's been riding and been able to be so confident because he's appeared to have this supernatural ability to just save crashes and sort of rides without consequence because of that. And I don't know. A lot of people disagree with me, but I think this is going to affect him mentally big time. I don't know, you say that, but there have been so many other things that should have affected him in terms of mind games and confidence that really haven't. Like, especially if you look at, like, Argentina. Mm-hmm. That should have been a huge reality check that kind of got him to pull back. And even though he has the talent, should have got him to ride a bit more reserved and, you know, just pull back a little bit. And then he goes on to win, you know, four races on the truck. Like. Yeah. I think that is almost one of Marquez's biggest strengths is that, well, if you exclude the 2015 season where it all fell apart. He has been incredibly good at just bouncing back at a moment's notice. It's one of the things that has won him. Well, it's it's what won him his last two championships. I agree, but you know his his uh, his confidence and his his armor and his you know crazy ability. I feel like it's already lasted longer than everyone expected. 
And there are people that are just sort of thinking, oh, well, this is just going to be forever. But no one's ever on the top all that long, right? I was talking about how Rossi's string... Who's going to step up who's younger than him, though? I don't know, but someone will. Like, you know, no one ever thought anyone would ever be as close. No one ever thought that anyone would ever be half as good as Rossi. And then here comes Mark Marquez. Within, you know, the same period of time, you know, that Rossi's still racing and is clearly, you know, the same kind of talent, right? Well, if Marquez continues at his current pace, Marquez will match Rossi's uh, number of wins and number of championships two years younger than Rossi. Right. But... You know, let's say he does that. Well, then for how much longer will he keep going? It's so hard to say. Exactly. The point well, is that here's the, the point is that it will all stop eventually, right? Well, yes. But when is that? No one knows. It could be the next race or it could be 5 seasons from now. We don't know. Well, here here's the thing. But Imagine... one thing is guaranteed at some point he will stop being dominant. Oh, for sure. But there there's so much noise in in MotoGP right now and it really happened about 4 or 5 years ago. And what happened is, you know, Marquez came along and you know, everyone didn't really know what he was going to do, but everyone knew he was going to be competitive mm-hmm. and went got straight on to the Repsol after Nikki and crushed it and then everyone was like okay well you know we don't really want to watch somebody rise through the ranks what we really want to do is identify that talent early and we're going to pull up jack miller and we're going to grab um vinales and a few other guys and we're just gonna we're gonna fast track them you know even if they don't win even if they haven't taken a Moto2 championship, we're just going to straight promote them right now. Get them on a bike. Get them on a satellite bike or, you know, kind of a satellite bike with additional support and start training them up and just say, we're going to lock this guy in now off of a Moto3 championship. And all of a sudden we're going to have this brand loyal guy who's a killer talent and... We're going to win championships off it, and we're going to win constructors' titles off of it. And as it turns out, you know, if you're if you're in Moto Three, you're kind of in, you know, at bare minimum, you're in, you know, the top two hundred street racers in the world. Yeah, you get past Moto Three, you're at least bare minimum in the top one hundred in the world. Yeah. Getting a MotoGP, you're guaranteed to be in the top 50. Yes. But the distance between best in the world and 50th in the world is this yawning chasm of skill difference. And the fact that you won a Moto3 championship doesn't mean that you're even shit. You're not even hot shit in Moto2. Mm-hmm. The skill curve is that ridiculous. So now you've got all these people like, 
dare I say, Cal Crutchlow getting massive amounts of factory support, whereas Petrucci getting the same amount of support, or well, Petrucci getting way less support is kicking his ass. You talk, you look at Iannone who dropped down to Suzuki. I don't know about that. Ducati tends to give massive amounts of support. Um, as far as I know, he's still riding a GP16. That's true. Um, is he? I thought he was on a 17. But it, it, anyway, Ducati tends to tends to give that support to their satellite teams much more than other factories, whereas Honda really just puts it all in Repsol, and then they might pick one little other darling, which is Cal Crutchler right now, who they'll throw parts to and everything, and everyone else is just plain shit out of luck. Yeah. Like, Estrella Glacia is just on their own. Like, good luck, guys. We sold you a bike. We'll see you at the end of the year. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's it, right? And Or Tech 3. Honda has been, or Yamaha has been the biggest offender in terms of... Yeah. Tech 3 is really just hung out to dry. Which turned out to really help Zarco out in this case, given all of their decisions this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zarko is interesting because you know Zarko is such a hot commodity because he's one of those riders that makes makes something happen on the bike that he shouldn't be able to make happen. So everyone's like, "Well, if we get this guy with real factory support, you know, we really might see something amazing." So I still think Repsol should have gone for Zarko. You know, putting up the results that he's put up with a bike that's clearly inferior. He's obviously a big talent. Now, uh, speaking of that and like producing results, Lorenzo's move to Repsol is amazing because so it's taken him a year. It's been a year and a half of just across the board, horrible results. What he's got one podium in that amount of time, two podiums. Did he get a podium? He got one podium last year. And treated it like a win. It was ridiculous. Like, it was the story. I can't remember which race it was, but it was like the story of the race. It was like Lorenzo podiumed. <laughs> like, and he, yeah, he celebrated that like it was a win. It was crazy. And he's done, I mean, he's just done nothing on that bike. So, reps all going, okay, you go to Ducati. You do a solid year and a half of jack shit, and then you get this win, and then we're willing to hire you. There's got to be this unspoken agreement that it will be absolutely okay for Lorenzo to go to Repsol and produce nothing for a year and a half. I think the Ducati is a bike that takes a certain kind of rider, and I think he will adapt to the Honda faster. I think it's more than that though. I think I think Honda's perspective is that they can afford to take Lorenzo. Especially consider the fact that um they've only signed him for two years. Okay. And in that span of time, uh is it Mir got signed to Suzuki for two years? I know they were talking about that. I don't know if it's solidified yet, mm-hmm. but they think they're I think they're thinking Mir and kicking Iannone right. out. Because I think the whole reason that Honda pulled the trigger so fast is 
as soon as Lorenzo won Mugello, and Ducat and uh, Davizioso came second, all of a sudden, oh, Lorenzo just pulled out a race that's just like his old ways. Davizioso is, you know, favorite for a top two this season, and Ducati just won twoed this race, which means. Next year and the year after, not only is the championship in jeopardy for Honda, the constructors' championship, or the constructors' title, and the team title for Repsol Honda, you know, for Honda, Repsol Honda, and Marquez, all in jeopardy, all with one result. And they hadn't re signed Pedrosa yet. So as soon as that happened, and all of those titles, especially since Honda values MotoGP over AMA, World Superbike, um, British Superbike, everything was on the line immediately for Honda. And in one fell swoop, they got to take that talent away from Ducati, and they could... I mean, even if Lorenzo was garbage at at Honda, it still serves the same purpose, which is this one person who proved that he could he could start taking uh, races. They just took him off the board for Ducati. Yeah. Yeah, because Iannone wouldn't go to Repsol Honda if you paid him double. Not Iannone, um, Dovi. Dovi wouldn't right. do it. Dovi is going to ride out the rest of his years at Ducati, there's just no way he's that's ever going to change. He is he is so synonymous with that team. Like at this point, Rossi is with Yamaha and Marquez is with with Repsol. There's just no way he he'll change. It's and it's a perfect matchup. They love having him. The fans love him being there. It's a great bike. It's a factory top level team. He would be insane to leave it, right? Mm. I think there is one really sad thing we have to recognize, though. What's that? Is that, well, for both good, it's sad, but I think it's probably for the best, is that Pedrosa is probably going to retire. It is sad. I don't know that it's for the best, but it, it, the way that it might be for the best is that Pedrosa might become their test and development writer. Honestly, in my opinion... I think at this point, Pedrosa, as much as he would fight it and strongly disagree, it is really time for Pedrosa to get off the track. When you consider how many times he's broken his arms, his wrists, shattered joints, how many times he's broken his collarbone, Pedrosa's kind of headed towards, like... A wheelchair. E- like evil Knievel levels of agonizing retirement in terms right. of how much he's destroyed his body. But testing and development doesn't bring the same kind of danger. That's true. That's why Casey Stoner does it. But is he real? Casey Stoner's like, oh, I'm a dad now. I'm a two-time world champion. I can just be put out to pasture and and just do testing and development for Ducati. Is he a good test rider, though? Pedrosa? Given how much 
okay. was an alien. Like he, there's he. Of course, he's a good test rider. But what do you mean? Well, he's like a hundred and five pounds, and all of his issues that he has are a result of his weight. So if you have a rider who's 140 pounds and Pedros is 105 pounds and all of his struggles have been about getting heat into the rear tire, is does he generate useful test data for your team? Surely they can just weight the bike down. Well, then you have to redistribute Why couldn't the you have Pedrosa just put on a 30-pound weight vest? If that were the case... I'm not saying you're dumb. It's just obvious to me, <laughs> right? If it's that big a well, deal, he could just wear a weight look, vest. If that were the case, and it were that simple, then that's what Pedrosa would have done. If I was a factory rider, and I had a choice of who was helping me develop the bike, I would rather have Danny Pedrosa wearing a 30-pound weight vest than any, than either of the Aspargaros, Okay. I'm, all I'm going to say is if it were that easy, this is the fix that uh, that Repsol would have Im- employed from the beginning. Well, he's probably not allowed to do that during races, but I'm sure there's nothing wrong with that during testing. Why wouldn't they be able to do that during racing? I don't know, but... Th- I mean, no, it's there's a minimum weight for rider and bike. Right. This is something they totally could have done. If that were the solution, they could have just made the subframe that much heavier or made the swing arm that much heavier. These were all things. Yeah, I don't think it's as big a deal as everyone's always made it out to be. I don't mm. know. If well, I were that... Honda, I'd put a 30 pound weight vest on him and say, here you go. Or be like, here, start drinking a lot of beer, <laughs> whatever it is. But, you know, as long as he can, I, I, I think, I think that'd be a great way for Danny Pedrosa to go out to be, to be the test rider for Repsol Honda. I don't, I don't even know who their test rider is right now. I don't think they have a real like name that we know. Whereas a lot of these teams do, you know, most notably Ducati and Casey Stoner. Didn't they have like Stefan Bradle or, or was it Bradley Smith? It was a BR. No, Bradley Smith is. Mm, I can't remember if it's it's either Stefan Bradle or Bradley Smith. I keep getting the names see, mixed up. See, and why would you have either of those guys going? Guys that have never put up top results in GP at that level. I mean, if you're if you're going to make that requirement, Look, then there's if Danny like three Pedrosa wins, if Danny Pedrosa wins the next race, you might be a little surprised, but you're not going to be shocked, right? If Bradley Smith came back for you know uh, uh, an exhibition, not exhibition, but you know uh, 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 a a wild card, a wild card, and won, you would be stunned. You would have, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. It would be ten times as shocking as Lorenzo winning Mugello. Yeah. Okay. I Danny Pedrosa is clearly a bigger talent. Clearly. I, there are years where he's come in second place and had more points than people have just outright won seasons with. Oh, multiple times, yeah. So, I mean, he is a top-level rider, and because of timing, essentially, just has never happened to win a championship. But it was only a couple races going a few different ways 
that stopped him from being a name that people revere like Casey Stoner. I mean, honestly. True. So, you know, when people get down about Danny, I, I, I always spring to his defense because guy's a top-level rider. Still is. Like, I know he's had horrible injuries. And, yeah, I don't want to see the dude end up in a wheelchair. And if the winds are just blowing that way, you know what? Like, it, I'm... I don't see any shame in him throwing in the towel, you know? I don't think he should, you know, throw his his health away just to keep racing, but... Yeah, I mean, that's the main thing is, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a world-class motorcycle rider, unless you're you're playing the high-stakes game road racing, where you'll ride until... We're riding until you hit 40 is normal... You're really only spending, you know, 30, 35% of your life of, you know. Let me put it this way. Just the fact that Danny Petrosa can retire says a lot about who he is, right? If he wanted to, I'm sure he could just call up Suzuki and be like, can I get a, a spot on your factory team? And they would go, absolutely, yes, right? Mm-hmm. If Danny Petrosa wants to race next year, he can. When was the last time we heard of a rider just retiring rather than losing their ride? Yeah. And never being able to get one again. It like It never happens, really. You just ride until one day everyone else decides that you're out of results. And then you're put out to pasture in World Superbike or British Superbike. Right, exactly. (laughs) And then that's another slow decline, right? People normally take the Max Biaggi route out of it, okay? Until they just become a sad joke. Well, if Danny Petrosa gets to actually just retire on his terms, essentially... And I wouldn't say, like, you know, Lorenzo taking that seat before he was signed, you know, him getting pushed out. Because, like I said, I believe that he could land himself a seat at Suzuki next year if he really wanted to. I don't think he'll do that, but if I were Suzuki, I would be super happy to have him. Right. You know, who who's a better racer with better results, Rins or Pedrosa? If you just took a race between Wins and Pedrosa, both on Suzuki's, who's going to win? Pedrosa, right? It's a no-brainer. So if he does retire this year, it'll be the first real retirement that I can remember in a long time. I mean, Stoner was probably the last noticeable retirement, right? Like, it's been like six, seven years. I just can't think of any other rider... Who's had the shit kicked out of him so much for such a long time. You know, besides evil Knievel. Yeah. Like. (sighs) Yeah, it's rough. But like, I mean, Pedrosa, you know, ideally you've got another 50 to 60 years to live out here. Yeah. You know, like. How many more collarbone fractures do you need? And what's that going to like? And, you know, I don't want to push him out. I don't want him to quit because he's such a great rider. He's so awesome. At the same time, it's like, let, 
let's evaluate the risk to reward ratio here. Let's see. The danger is that Pedrosa always puts up his wins in the at the end of the season, mm-hmm. which has never made him like a super hot commodity. Yeah, uh, because by then, because weirdly, you'd think that would, but what it does is he. It's all after the all silly, the chips are down. Exactly. Yeah. After all the silly season stuff has been sorted out, that's when he starts posting wins. So what's going to happen is he's going to win like Motegi or, you know, Thailand or something like that. And then someone's going to give him a serious bid this year because this year the whole time frame is completely different. You know, like there used to be a silly season, but now like this year, they're just no one has even said silly season or it's an early silly season. Silly season is just all the time now. Mm -hmm. Right. People are just announcing things just whenever. So I think someone will throw him an offer for a ride at the end of the season after he posts a win or two and he'll take it or he won't. And he'll be retiring on his if he retires it'll be on his terms and if he does then i say bravo and if he takes a different ride i still say bravo i think it might be smarter for him to take do you know what would be the best to thing? take like a test rider position at repsol because i think they would give him that you know what my you know what would be my favorite decision for pedrosa what's that if he retires and then he ends up working for Dorn or for um, for Sky as the English um, pit commentator. Oh yeah! Instead of what's his face? Oh god! What's his name? Oh, I can guy. never remember his name. Um, oh, he's so terrible. Honestly, he's it's starting to grow on me. Really? Yes. I, I actually kind of love it because it's just kind of like it it brings you out of it to a certain degree, but it's also just kind of a little bit silly. And I mean, everyone wants to be like, you know, Dylan Gray was great. He was excellent. But you know what? It's okay. It's not the end of the world. People want to be like super pissed off. Well, what about the girl they had doing it at, at, at Austin? Well, that was great, too. And... These are all viable options. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Danny could do it in this strange, like, broken English way. Cause, like, weren't you even telling me that the way that they speak, like, the dialect has almost become, like, a recognized official, like, documented dialect? It's it's almost like, you know, the transatlantic accent of, like, you know, the 40s through the 60s with the... Kind of the um, Americanized, but with like the... Would the way they speak technically be a pigeon? Sort of. But yeah, I, I've i always, for like the last 10 years, I've called it Formula One English. Right. Yeah, that is what it is. Yeah, it's Formula One English, but there there is a certain thing about it. They've only got like 400 working words that they yeah. use. And <laughs> it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre, but I love it. <laughs> so try speaking English with no discernible real accent, unless you're Italian, and you have to use the word try, fast, very, and hard as eight times more than you ever would. 
And then all you have to do is uh, exchange um for eh. And you really need eh. to cut down the number of conjunctions a lot. <laughs> it's fantastic. We should try to record a whole show using Formula One English. That's going to be tough. It's a tall order. Okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot of what happened on that race. It might be time to end this episode. I think it is. All right. So this is GP reminding you to stay safe and stay tuned. And Swiggy's reminding you to stay safe and stay tuned as well. <laughs> Remember, you can email us at nokomotopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to be it from us. Later. And I don't want to die Just want to ride on my motorcycle Mm -hmm, Cold 